Welcome once again to another fantastic episode of the Business Creators Radio Show. We help business creators like you win at the game of business and marketing so you can thrive from your intersection of your brilliance and your passion and make a difference for your community, market, and audience. Please take a moment and visit our website, www.businesscreatorsradioshow.com. You'll find hundreds of episodes covering a breadth and depth of topics relevant to you as a business creator and links to subscribe via your favorite network so you get fresh episodes delivered straight to you. And now, here's today's episode. Let's get started. My name is Adam Homie. I am your host, and I am honored once again by your wise decision to tune in and invest in yourself today. The Business Creators Radio Show takes you to those places and those venues where you have mastermind meetings and aha moments that move you closer to serving from your intersection of your brilliance or your passion and can possibly change your trajectory, depending on whether you hear the answer to a question you didn't even know you needed to ask up until now. Today, I come to you from my balcony here in sumptuous Las Vegas, known to some as the hottest city in America, and by some measures other than the temperature, it most certainly is. And we're going to have a conversation with a very interesting dude that we've been looking to get on here for a while. And this is going to sort of merge a few different topics that are very much of interest to me. The idea of acquisitions and startups uh, the use of information technology to facilitate culture, and also team building. So we're going to have ourselves a blast. The guy's name is Andrew Swiler, and let me tell you about him. He's a strategic entrepreneur, astute investor, and he's a chief executive officer of a company whose name I may butcher here, so he'll probably correct me in a second, Lanteria. <laughs> which is a thriving business productivity software company based in Seattle, Washington. His leadership at Lanteria has been instrumental in providing top-tier HR solutions to a wide array of enterprise-level customers. Coupled with his significant investing skills, Andrew's insights into global business trends have been a driving force in Lanteria's success and growth. Andrew Swiler, come on in. The weather's fine. Hey, Adam. Thank you for having me on. You uh you nailed it. Lanteria is the correct name. The only thing that you got wrong there is we are based in Seattle, but we actually are fully remote. So we have no offices. We have uh, we all work from our homes or from co-working spaces. So that's really the only difference. But we are a Seattle-based company. Bookmark that thought. We may come to it if we have time. Now, I read off the official bio. Very impressive. Not sure I'm worthy to be in your presence, and this is my show. So uh, so what we like to do here is we like to know more than just the official bio. We like to pull back the curtain just a little bit. Now, you gave us some very key points you want us to cover when we were chatting in the green room, and I have a few questions for you. So we're going to have a nice, interesting conversation. But before we do that, let's pull back the curtain a little. Tell us a bit about your journey and what's brought you to where you are today, serving business creators from your intersection of your brilliance and your passion. So uh, my journey is pretty, it's pretty long. So I'll, I'll pull it back, uh, pull it back pretty far. So I, I actually started uh, in private equity back in 2006 when I got out of, uh, when I got out of college and worked in a company that was doing distressed private equity. So we would buy companies out of bankruptcy. We were helping companies uh, like Starbucks when they were shutting down all their stores. 
back during the, you know, the great, the, the GFC. So I did that for about five years. And in 2010, I walked into my boss's office one day and I said, Hey, I'm thinking about going to Europe and writing for a while. And he looked at me and he said, Oh man, you are burned out. You got to go. <laughs> I, right. I was like, all right. So I booked a ticket to Europe, uh, like three weeks later and traveled for about six months and ended up meeting my wife uh, during that journey on a, on a little island in Croatia. Uh, so I pulled up in a little kayak on a beach, met my wife, and ended up traveling with her for about a month through Croatia. And then we never we never really left each other's side. We ended up moving to San Francisco a few months later. Okay. Uh, I, be- I became a fractional CFO for some startup app companies at the time when I was living in San Francisco before fractional CFOs were really kind of a thing. Um, and one day my wife said to me, you know, I, I want to, my wife's from Barcelona. So one day my wife said to me, I really don't like living here. I want to move back to Barcelona and I'm going to go back next week and you can come with me or you can stay here. Okay. And so we, we ended up getting married at the San Francisco city hall. And a week later I moved here to Barcelona where, where I currently live. Uh, my wife and I started, uh, because I, I mean, I didn't speak the language, didn't know what I was going to do. And my wife and I started an eyewear company here in Barcelona uh, back in 2012 and grew that, uh, we got some investment, uh, grew that to several locations here in Spain and franchises in six different countries. Um, at one point, we were selling online in 50 different countries, our, our glasses. Uh, 2019, my wife had some some uh, health issues, unfortunately, and, and we sold the business to um, to some of our partners in Germany. And at that point, I kind of said, what am I going to do next? Like, what is, what's sort of the next thing I'm going to do? And I'd always heard about, you know, I, I worked in private equity. I'd heard about sort of search funds, which is sort of a micro form of private equity. And I decided, you know what, I'm going to go out and, and acquire uh, a company. And after about a year of searching, looking around, I finally found uh, Lanteria. Mm-hmm. Uh, the two founders of Lanteria were from Ukraine. Uh, they had obviously issues because of the war. There were some concerns about, you know, how are we going to keep uh, the continuity of the business, concerns for the employees, concerns for the, the clients, and they were looking to sell. And so I put together a small group of investors, uh, an SBA loan, and we closed on the business uh, about a year ago. And since then, we have, you know, made some changes, grown the company about 30% top line. Uh, it's continued to be profitable. It's been a profitable company for several years. But uh, yeah, it's been so far been an exciting journey building a f- another fully remote company. This is my second one. Well, I couple things I want to bring up here. Uh, first of all, uh, I love the idea where you got married at City Hall. I think that is just actually one of the more <laughs> romantic things. Now, I'm not being sarcastic. I'm being serious. No, no, I I got I because I. I, I because I got to tell you, uh, I myself have, have dodged the M bullet, as some people like to call it, twice. Um, okay. Still, I'm still, I'm still open when I find the uh, when I find the right first lady for my ventures, and uh, and uh, she's going to find me one of these days, and I know it's going to happen, and uh, I'll know it's her when she says, "You're in Las Vegas. Can we go to one of those drive-throughs and have Elvis do it?" And I'll say, "Sure." <laughs> Because because sure. ultimately, ultimately, I think that um, when you marry somebody, when you commit to a lifetime with someone, it's really about you and that other person. And I've, you know, 
I haven't been in my own wedding yet, but I've been in several other people's weddings and I've also attended a whole bunch of weddings. Well, I've been in yeah. some of those, you know, big weddings with uh, the huge ceremony and the oh, yeah. reception. Be, yep. <laughs> and, uh, you know, and my thought is, you know, in the end, I, I kind of felt bad for the bride and groom because it wasn't really about them at all. It was about their families and their friends and uh and uh who was uh trying to show pole position and uh and appearances and rituals and every other damn thing the most interesting wedding i ever attended i'm gonna give a shout out to my friends kirk and becca holmes who are here in las vegas um i well you know kirk was one of the other authors in the anthology i contributed to journeys to success millennial edition and becca's been on my yeah. other podcast so um they had a wedding where they, I think they did it in the chapel that had a capacity of like 30 or 40 people. And they did that on purpose so that they had the, uh, I may be off on this. And if one of them wants to correct me, I will acknowledge it publicly. But I believe part of the reason they did that is so they didn't have to pick who their friends were. They really could keep it to the closed circle. Their reception was at an exotic car dealership where they served really? <laughs> they served desserts and cake and there was no dinner uh they um it was it was really great they even warned you have dinner before you come here we have we have uh, the best desserts we got this awesome caterer and we're gonna have a great cake but really it's uh we're gonna have a bar and you're gonna have some desserts so we all hung out and uh, gawked at the cars and it was it was a, it was a blast the only That's funny awesome. The only funny thing, and if I'm off by one technical point here, again, I'm open to correction, is uh, they made one small mistake with it. And I tell this because it's funny. Uh, they had two cash bars there and they failed to meet the minimum because, you know, you have to meet a minimum when you hire a cash <laughs> bar. And uh, Kirk and Becca met in AA. Ah, oh, wow. Who do you think a lot of their friends were? <laughs> yeah, wow. That was not a great decision. <laughs> <laughs> that's one or you could you could do a byob if uh if that's the the how they met that's yeah. crazy and and the car and the car they used to drive off with the just married sign on it was um it was uh this old classic uh 1960s lincoln thunderbird or excuse me ford thunderbird it was owned by um a friend of theirs who has a whole warehouse full of exotic cars and i know the guy too he, i've been on his boat uh cruising on uh lake mead so uh yeah but uh it, it, and what i loved about that is they uh, dispensed of all the things we're told that we are supposed to do in order to have a proper wedding. And they really made it about their own personalities. And, uh, and, uh, and, you know, when I hear these stories of people who went to city hall or did the beach wedding or had their reception in an exotic car dealership or something, I'm thinking, I'm thinking, uh, I'll know that the right woman has found me when she has an even crazier idea. Yeah. When, <laughs> when it's even simpler. I, I agree. Some of some weddings I've been to, it ends up being almost a networking event for uh, you know, the parents of the bride and groom sometimes yeah. more than for them. So I I fully agree. Yeah, it's like, can I go home now? But <laughs> yeah. So that, that that's one thing. And another is uh and this is something that I mention a lot just because it's one of my ten it's one of my uh, tertiary issues is I myself uh, endured three years of what we call Spanish language education in secondary school, plus the mandatory two semesters in college. And yeah. uh, 
And the only things I really know how to say are to call somebody a puta and uh, to uh, and uh, and to be able to ask of you. You went to Bo Bar Barcelona and uh, and uh, te hablo español. Sí, sí, hablo español. Yeah, you hablo español. And and Catalan as well. I, I speak both uh, local languages here. Nice, nice, nice. So, yeah, um, I love the idea that, uh, and, you know, your, your bio said based in Seattle, Washington, and the fact you had that nice little correction of that it's actually a remote company with corporate offices based there, but you yourself live in Barcelona, and your people are all over the world, and I think we're seeing so much more of that, and that's the thing that keeps me going during the down periods of entrepreneurship. It's like, I could be going to an office from nine to five and sitting in a cubicle. Oh man, yeah. Sometimes, sometimes. I mean, when things have been really bad, and I've been on had a few of those nadirs in business. That's the thing I've held on to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You still can control your time, and you know, you want to go play some golf uh, at nine o'clock on a Tuesday. That's yeah. that's on. That's up to you. You get to make that decision. Yeah. Also, also, if I also, uh, you know, the type of work that I do and that a lot of people do isn't really a nine to five job. It's, uh, yeah. I mean, within the context of meeting deadlines and things like that, it's uh, really when your energies and your creativities drive you to do it. So if you're in a in a structured corporate environment, let's say that you, uh, quote unquote, stay late to get a project done. Well, you're still expected to show up at eight o'clock in the morning and uh, yeah. <laughs> and uh, be just as great then. Well, if I, you know, I I tend to be a night owl, so I may be working on a project late, and uh, and you know the next day I might not want to get started till noon. Okay, hey, as long sure. as that, long, sure. long as nothing's long as long as I don't have an appointment at ten and uh, nothing's due at eleven, I'm good for noon. No, I think people, people, you know, they get inspired at certain times. They have different, they do have different internal clocks. I mean, I, I work a lot, like right now it's, uh, as we're speaking, it's 10, 15. And I work usually from about nine to midnight, most, yeah. most evenings. And I spend most of the afternoon with my kids. I mean, my kids get out of school at like four and I'm usually like four until nine o'clock. Uh, I spend uh -huh. it with my kids. So I get to make that decision. And, and I, I, frankly, I try and encourage my employees as well to, you know, work at the hours they want to obviously if they're support engineers or something like that they need to be available for our customers yeah but, you know people on our marketing team or people in sales i i tell them take take demos whenever you want uh there, there is no structured time just make sure that you know if, if somebody on the team is reaching out to you that you give a response at a reasonable time uh because you know asynchronous works but only yes responsible about it yeah, that's a word I was going to weave in asynchronous because uh, I, you know, because with some of my clients, they're asynchronous virtual teams. And it's a matter of uh, different work styles, different times of day, different personalities, different philosophies, and making that work using a combination of cultural understanding and technology. So uh, let's actually start there since we're already on the topic. Because uh, uh, I love stories of remote team building, and I'm so happy to see more of it. It's one of the silver linings of covid so uh you know what is your process for onboarding people because i know that it's a different process to hire a remote worker than it is to hire an office worker it is that i actually just uh i was writing some uh some tweets for the next couple of weeks I, I i do some of my writing in batches and i was just writing about some of that uh because it i think it's the most difficult and the most critical part of of remote work is the onboarding part and the first 90 days somebody's in a company 
because you, so, I mean, the way, the way I typically do it and the way our company's done it is we use Confluence. I don't know if you use Confluence and it's like Notion by Atlassian. So we put together an onboarding document with a, you know, a Loom video, uh, walk through all the people they need to know, all the information about the people. Uh, some of the people on our executive team, we have um, basically bios of ourselves that sort of walk through our our handbook of how to deal with us. So like, you know, the hours we work, the things we like, the way we communicate, the things we're good at, the things we're not good at. So they can get to know, you know, the people that are above them. Uh, and then we basically go through all the documentation they need, all the things they need to go through, all the educational things they need to go through. And then we encourage them to schedule, you know, after you've read this, talk to Karen in Florida, for example, to, you know, get to know uh, this part of our product a little bit more. After you've done this, talk to Slavic uh, about, you know, from the support team to understand what our customers want. So we try and do a step-by-step -step program. Now, where it breaks down usually is that the managers, and, and we're a small team, so yeah. where it breaks down sometimes is you need managers to be following up with that. And if the managers aren't doing that and aren't encouraging that, a lot of people can start getting lonely, especially kind of more junior people pretty quickly. And they're like, well, what am I doing here? This is like, you know, once in a while, somebody sends me a Slack message. I see people kind of chatting a little bit in the all hands group, but, you know, this is kind of strange. So, I mean, the critical thing about that first 90 days is you need to get people's buy-in and get them to really understand the the company because the first 30 days are excited like wow remote work you know hopefully they've worked in a remote setting i mean we usually only hire people that have but you know they're excited that they're excited about you know taking on this new challenge doing this stuff but by day 90 sometimes you know the grind gets in there the difficult things oh this product is kind of difficult it's difficult to sell or it's difficult to do some of these support cases or i'm yeah. still having these issues and that grind just it can wear people out. And I'd say that 90 to 120 day point is where we lose a lot of people. And if they cross that chasm, that's when you start seeing them buying in, seeing them engaged, seeing them as part of the team. Uh, but I'd say that first 90 to 120 days, it's really hard because it's it's not like a typical job where you show up for that first day in the office, you know, you get to know this person, the person sitting next to you. It's, it's relatively lonely and you really have to, I, I still think, I mean, I think the world is, moving towards remote, but I think the world is still going to have a lot of in-person because there are people that just don't like it and it's not their thing. I mean, I, I know people that most of their friends are people that they work with in their office. Yeah. And, you know, that's not a remote work setting that they're going to like. But for me, I like being with my family. I like being with my friends. I like controlling my time. And the people that work with me are the same way. They prefer, you know, your work is your work and your family is your family. Your work isn't your family. And it's it's different and it has its disadvantages. I mean, you don't get as big of a buy-in as you do in in-person uh, in-person companies. I think I think things do move a little bit slower. Things are a little bit more difficult, and right. you got to keep iterating. I think a lot of this is new and people are still getting used to you know mastering it. I I know I every week I'm trying to figure out what is what is something we can tweak to get people more bought in, to get people more engaged, to get. And and it's it's difficult. We you know we're also working with people across a lot of cultures: Indians, Ukrainians, Spanish people, British people, Americans, Canadians. So that that adds a complexity to it. Where you know everyone's different. A Ukrainian is really different from an Indian person, and it's hard to kind of bridge that gap. But we try. Yeah, and, and yeah, you 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 bring up a lot a lot of things. Uh, yeah, engagement is a different story when the person is remote. And I spoke with somebody else on this show, I think about six months ago, who explained this to our audience. And part of it is you're looking for a different type of motivation. 
because yep. they're not surrounded by the workplace and they need to feel a different type, not even necessarily a different level, but a different type of buy-in to what they're doing in order to work well at it. Now, there have been studies around for a long time and uh, and uh, this was even before remote work became so much more of a thing in the past three years that they did a study of people who work in offices like the nine to five uh, Monday through Friday with the hour for lunch and two 15 minute mandatory break type thing. Yep. And they studied their work habits, what they did during the day and their productivity. And they determined that of that eight hours that they were there for the work part of it, that the actual amount of time that the average person spent doing things that were productive toward the company's bottom line and return on investment was two hours and 54 minutes. That was my guess was going to be under three hours. So you were pretty, you were pretty close, and and we know what the rest of it was spent on. Uh, you know, navigating bullshit office politics, pointless meetings, water cooler yep. chat, and then uh, and then on those days where you're actually completed all your work by one o'clock and you're staring at the screen for four hours because you have to make it look like you're busy. I mean, uh, yep. whereas whereas when you don't have that constriction, hey, if you're done, if you're done by one o'clock one day, then you're just done uh you'll make you'll make it up and you'll have it made up to you when you put in the 14 hour day on a project or or to bring through a major deliverable when you're just feeling really inspired and you get in there and you kick some serious ass it's like yeah like, it, it's hard it's it, it's hard to, to strike that balance i mean you're, yeah i mean it, it's it's something that people are going to go to an office they're not going to do anything most of the time they're not going to be at their peak moment i mean my wife's the perfect example she works you know, whenever she feel, feels inspiration strikes her, she starts working and yeah. she just could never be in an office and right. it just would, would never work for her. But other people, it just doesn't work for them. And I, I don't know. I, I think the maximalists that are like, no, remote work only remote is the only thing. And I, I've worked remote for 12 years and I'm yeah. always said, I'm like, you know, it's not for everyone. It, there's yeah. some really, there's some really terrible things about remote work that, that, oh, there, oh, there discuss. are, there, there, there are, I mean, everything has its pluses. And minuses. And I don't put down somebody who wants to be in a structured office environment and work from this time to this time, what have you, because A, there there are jobs that require that. And I'm not just talking about public service and manufacturing and engineering. I mean, there are a lot of uh, just the the nature of the work requires that. And there are some folks who thrive in that environment. And the thing is, uh, those of us who uh, work remotely or do the laptop lifestyle thing or work from home or what have you, we need them and they need us. It's symbiotic. Yeah, 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 for sure. And I I mean, I think from a management perspective, like I'm, I'm still... Uh, you know, even 10 years in, I'm still kind of learning how how to manage in these situations. I mean, I think it's all about, like any management, it's all about communication, managing expectations, over communicating. But I think one of the key things that I've noticed is the more ownership, and I don't mean like equity in the company, I think the more ownership people feel for the work yeah. that they're doing, it it's really the difference maker. They're, the only people I think that really fit that sort of category is people that f- the the category of remote work is people that feel ownership for what they're doing and they feel a sense of pride. Like, hey, when I do this, I do this well, and this is why I do it. And if that's you know, if you're doing it just to like make sure you're getting your collecting your paycheck, remote work is the is not going to be the best, and and it's going to cause friction. And if the boss is a good boss, I mean, I, I do this. I mean, this has happened to me over the last year. Pff, 
two or three times. I've just had to let people go because they're just not responding. They're not communicating. And I say to them, you got to communicate. You got to respond. And that's part of the job. And yeah. like, yeah, but right. I'm doing, I'm hitting my numbers. I'm doing this. It's like, it doesn't matter if you're not responding, then it's like, you're not here. So we can't right. pay you if you're not here, if you're not going to respond to team members, that's it. That's the basics of remote work. And we've let a few people go, even that they were, they were pretty good contributors just because they, they just didn't communicate. Well, yeah, yeah. And in any environment, uh, communication is essential. And just to finish my other point before I ask uh, this next to the lighting question, you know, you can, you can say what you want about the person. Um, like I'm thinking of, uh, you know, the dentist I had for 20 years when I was growing up and, uh, and, uh, for that, for the entire time I was growing up and even when I was a younger adult before I moved to Las Vegas and I, and I went to have all my uh, dental work done there, he had the same receptionist that entire time. And this is somebody who probably probably showed up five minutes before the office opened to patients and sat there all day and collected payments and filled out insurance forms and uh, and typed on a computer and answered the phone and everything else. And uh, and there are some folks who say, why does she why does she limit herself? Well, here's how I look at it. My dentist could not have thrived without that nine to five uh, without that nine to five uh, work jobber. Because yeah. he because he would not have been free to function at his intersection of his brilliance and passion in uh, in the exam room by the chair. Yeah, for sure. He he'd be distracted, knowing is she doing the right thing? Is she not answering the phone? Is she saying the right thing? I mean, if you don't have trust, you can't you can't focus on your own work. It'd, it'd I, be, I totally it'd agree. Be, it'd be having to take time between patients to return calls to book appointments. <laughs> yeah. How, how's that? How's that making him a successful dentist? No. No, exactly. It's, it's, it's definitely not. Yeah. So, uh, you know, you mentioned uh, acquiring a software company and uh, you mentioned to me that uh, you were able to do that with none of your own money. So, you know, there's this whole uh, ox and horse cart thing. Uh, people want to get started in business, but they don't have the money and uh, and they need the money to start the business. And in order to start the business, they need the money, blah, 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 blah. And uh, the holy grail out there, I think, is you know, being able to make an acquisition without your own money there for everybody who does it, there's a different story. And I think the best yeah. way I can contribute to this conversation is to collect the story. So what's yours? So I would say you got, I mean, I, I knew I wasn't going to be able to put in a lot of my own money. And I yeah. knew also that I was not looking to buy a job for myself. I was not looking right. to buy a company that was doing 200 grand in, in revenue. And I was going to have to kind of figure out what product market fit is. I was looking for a very specific type of company and one that we could put debt on and one that I could get investors excited about. So when, I mean, I spent, like I said, almost over, probably over a year uh, looking around at different things until Lanteria fell in my lap. And I looked at, uh, I don't know if you know what a, a SIM or, or anyone that's listening to a SIM, a confidential information memorandum is basically just like yeah. a, a pitch deck for companies that are for sale. So I looked, I probably read, 3000 just to take it was like at, at bats for me you'd read and you'd read and you'd look at this and try and get, you know you'd figure out like numbers and look at things talk to brokers talk to sellers and you started to collect information and data points so when i saw this one i knew it was an outlier so i like immediately i was like i just started started writing up a pitch deck told the guy like wrote up an loi in a week I was like, I know I got to get this under contract and I know I got to, I got to push this to the door. Otherwise, you know, I'm, I'm going to miss the train because this one's an outlier. 
So I put together a pitch deck, um, went out to find investors and was able to convince the, the funny thing is I, I probably talked to, I, there's a park outside of my house and I would walk back and forth in the park at night and talk to investors on the phone. And, you know, all these people, this was right, you know, after COVID they were, they, they, you know, probably two years before that, they would have never talked to me, never even picked up the phone, a guy in Barcelona, they'd be like, what the hell, why am I talking to this guy? Yeah. Now it was just like another guy on, you know, sitting on a zoom call with you. So I'd walk up and down the park every night talking to talking to investors, the people that invested in our company, it took them 15 minutes on the phone and maybe an hour of due diligence because I, I was very open about due diligence. I shared whatever we had, like whatever the owners uh -huh. had given us, I shared with our investors. I said, whatever I know, you should know. And none of them even looked at anything. They talked to me for 15 minutes. So like, I get it. Price is right. Deal's good. Uh, let me know when you need me to wire the check. So that part wasn't quite as hard. The hardest part was getting, so I, I knew to get my own, you know, a sufficient amount of equity in this business, I needed to get an SBA loan. So I went out to get an SBA loan and obviously a guy living in Barcelona that has zero assets in the United States uh, is not what the SBA is looking for, uh, for from a security perspective. <laughs> but fortunately, uh, the the company that we bought, Lanteria, had a very good history of earnings. Uh, the, the previous owners had been earning you know well over half a million a year. And the SB, we found an SBA lender in, in North Carolina. Uh, through a reference from a friend, a friend of a friend. And within, uh, you know, I talked to a bunch of SBA lenders. Everyone said, no, shut the door. This guy, these guys, Ben and John put together this deal in, I think from first contact to being in closing was three weeks. And then we went through the closing period in another three weeks. So all in all, it was about a six-week period to close the SBA loan. But before getting to that point, we had to have already raised the equity. So I, I had to do the equity first before going out to the SBA. So the whole process took about three and a half, four months uh, in the acquisition. And you know, obviously during that period, I was doing some due diligence, working with um, working with the owners to get to know the business. But at the same time, when we went into closing on the SBA loan, the Ukraine war broke out. Uh, yeah. The, the the week we went into closing and the SBA guy calls me and he goes, what's your plan? And I go, don't worry about it. I got, you know, I, I know these guys in India that I'm working with these other, these other guys are investors. We'll take care of it. We'll, we'll replace all the people. And he was like, all right, cool. No problem. So somehow we got these guys to believe in us, even though, you know, Ukraine war was going on and it has had some hiccups throughout the last year. I mean, we, we did have a few weeks where some of our guys didn't have electricity uh, we had to rent uh, an office in downtown Kiev to make sure that some of these guys had had uh, generators and and Starlink set up. But all in all, it it's you know it's worked out pretty well, and it's it's been a difficult journey. I mean, paying back an SBA loan is obviously not fun and eats into cash flow and things that you want to be doing fun things. But if the business is growing, I think it's it's definitely worth it. But I I know some people that have done this type of deal and gotten just slammed because they they didn't look at the numbers right. They didn't understand the business right. They were probably too much hubris. They weren't entrepreneurs coming into it. Uh, and I think, you know, the, the key always to entrepreneurship is just resilience. Like yeah. you just always figure out a way to plow through whatever horrible thing that you're dealing with and get to the other side. And I think a lot of like MBA guys, search fund guys, I don't think they have that. I think there's a fine line and a, and a delicate balance between due diligence, smart due diligence versus uh, 
overanalyzing and attempting to cover every single base oh, yeah. because the nature of business is chaotic. I, I mean, you can do strong, you can do the best due diligence. You can hire all 10 of the the top consulting firms in the world and pay each of them $100,000 to do the due diligence. You can spend a million dollars on due diligence and be able to say, I invested a million dollars in due diligence before I made this decision to invest a million and a half in your company. So uh, I am certain that this is going to be a smart investment for me. And then next thing you know, a lot of your operations are based in Ukraine and, and a Russian missile slams into the side of your building. <laughs> well, gee, uh, that be I bet you that didn't come up in the due diligence reports. Now did it. No, that one, that one did not come up. I, yeah, I agree. I see a lot of people that do that type of thing. I mean, they're, it's, you know, they're, they're doing these like smallish kind of deals and they're trying to LARP as private equity firms or yeah. these big institutional investors. Like they're trying to please these institutional investors, but they don't even have institutional investors. And you say, why are you spending all this money? Like to just cover your butt, like as if you're a CEO hiring McKinsey, so you can just go to shareholders and be like, look, I hired McKinsey, you know, how was I supposed yeah. to know the missile was going to slam into the office building? Right, 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 right. The, th the thing being is no matter how much due diligence you do, uh, to a certain point, there are some things you just cannot predict. And there are some things that will not come up. I mean, uh, I mean, let's look at, uh, you know, one of the most successful investors of our time, Elon Musk. Uh, he he made he made the bid to uh, acquire Twitter at fifty four dollars and twenty cents a share, and I still think that the reason it was fifty four dollars and twenty cents is because he went to the valuation people and uh, they gave him probably gave him a number like fifty three dollars and eighty cents or something, and he said, "Can you put four twenty in it?" <laughs> I think that's why it was fifty four twenty. But anyway, um, he did all this due diligence. <laughs> And then he found, and then he found out that Twitter had a lot more bots than the due diligence um, had indicated, uh, which lowered the valuation of the company. And he tried to restructure the deal. He tried to get out of the deal, and the court said, "Nope, nope, you uh, signed up for fifty-four twenty. You got to do it." Well, yep. that is something that even the best due diligence couldn't have prevented then. And regardless of how chaotic you think he is, you know he did due diligence. You know he paid money to a lot of smart people to do this. And he himself has that type of analytical brain that he did his own complete set of it. But there's, oh, yeah. but, uh, there's nothing in all that that could have told him that he was being lied to. No. So, so, no, so, so, he paid, so he paid more for the company than it was worth. And rather than give up on it, he decided, okay, well, I paid more than it was worth, so I can do whatever I want with it. And uh, he's, regardless of what you think of some of the things he's doing with Twitter, what I think is happening, and I keep getting proven right on this, is he acquired it with the idea that he wasn't just buying it so he could say he had Twitter and he wasn't just going to have a designer come in and and uh, work over the website a little and make a couple changes to the policy just to show there was a new sheriff in town. He was buying it so he could rip it up. And ultimately, yeah. what he was actually acquiring were the underlying technology, which could be purposed or folded into something else. And he was buying the user database, the whole thing with the uh, with the check marks and things like that. And yeah, I have a check mark. Uh, so yeah, uh, yeah, because I because I like to be able to write long posts. That's the reason why uh, okay. I, I, I do not like to be limited by 280 characters. And a cup of coffee a month is worth it to not be told that I have to be pithy. But anyway, yeah. <laughs> but, but, but anyway, part of that was uh, when I saw him doing that, I realized this was one of the strategies 
of separating the wheat from the chaff and finding out how big the real user database was. Meaning yeah. not just all the people who created an account and dabbled in it or signed up once to uh, because somebody said retweet this for a chance to win concert tickets, but the people who were really going to be his users. And then... No, no, I agree. Yeah, find out who they are, what their interests are, what they're willing to invest in further, and craft other innovations along with that. I also said that within a year, uh, it would that there would be no more such thing as Twitter. And although the rebranding is not complete, we now know it's called X. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, is, uh, yeah, my prediction I, I, is is in two year in two years from the date of his acquisition from the uh, fall of 2022, what we knew as Twitter will no longer exist at all. Yeah. Yeah, 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 and it's it's definitely coming true. I'll, we'll see where it goes. I I do think that uh, some of the engagement bait and things like that is is uh, it, it has lost some of its interest of of as far as being a user goes. Yeah, but I mean, I I'm sure it has a I'm sure they have a plan, and I'm sure there's some sort of roadmap. I mean, Twitter is the only social network I basically use, so I it's still by far the most interesting one compared to any of the other ones. Yeah. So it's, it's like, where else are you going to go right now? I mean, it's, yeah, yeah. I, I, I'll be candid. I use it for a combination of trolling people and, um, yeah. and uh, also, and also um, I'll disclose just a piece of this because it's actually not something I like to talk about openly, but um, I'm using it to enter into a completely different market that I'm in right now where there's a lot of potential money. Interesting. Yeah. So on the surface, it looks like I, I go there to uh, I go to there to uh, to stand a candidate like in the election. But there's actually a deeper layer to it. And uh, and if uh, and if you really take time to study who the followers are, who I follow, who I engage with, uh, you may be able to discern that there's a strategy about who I'm reaching and who they're connected to. That's all okay. I'm going to say. I'll try. I'll try and dig in there and see where this money is. See if I if I can follow the trail. Yeah, yeah. See, yeah, there's a there's a real simple answer to it, and this is probably the only time I'm ever going to drop this hint. Uh, and for unfortunately, <laughs> the people I know who might from that world who might be listening to this are aware of who they are. So, okay. uh, and actually, this is my way of confirming to them that I am indeed what they're looking for or what they think okay. I am. So, uh, but right. yeah, and, and when I go on when I go on Facebook, uh, that's where I go to uh, do a lot of uh, networking. I spend most of my time on Facebook inside groups because that's where I make my best connections. On LinkedIn, uh, LinkedIn is usually the secondary point of contact. And if you're yeah. on my LinkedIn, that means that we're probably already in progress toward a business deal. I mean, I have yeah. something like six thousand connections there or something, uh, most of which were built during another era. But the newer connections, uh, usually that happens when we're already a little bit down the path of whether it's toward an actual business deal or whether you've been on my show and we're and we're uh, taking the next level just in staying connected or what have you. So uh, there is an intention behind it. It looks chaotic, but it's not just like this interview. No, no, I, I I agree. There there always has to be some sort of structure to you know why you're using some sort of social network or another. I mean, I use I use Twitter most of the the like our acquisition came from Twitter. The investors I've met, most of them came from Twitter. Yeah. Uh, some of my partners have come from Twitter. So, you know, if you put yourself out there and you put out the right things and you you know your target, you can meet some very interesting people off of Twitter. And then obviously LinkedIn, you know, kind of helps you be a more professional 
yeah 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 uh yeah the one mistake that i see people make sometimes they say oh i'm on all kinds of social media platforms and what i do is every morning i open up all the platforms in a tab and i take today's post and i copy paste it. it's like uh okay yeah, that's not gonna work that, okay that that might be good for awareness marketing because people will see you everywhere but it doesn't really take into the account that you really have different audiences on each one of those platforms who are in different places in your customer and client acquisition cycle. Yeah. 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 I, yeah. I think a lot of people make, make that mistake that they just think, you know, I just got to put it out everywhere. And I mean, I see that in marketing too. You see companies that just keep re repeating the same posts across different things. And you say like, why, why, are you uh -huh. doing this? like what's, why, why even yeah. waste your time? All right. So for the third, third of our time together here, I, uh, I have a couple clients right now who own firms that uh, that do remote human resource work for clients. Mm -hmm. And uh, what these clients have in common is they've paid me a lot of money up front for work that hasn't started yet. And you want to know why that is? Why? Because they're so damn busy. Wow. Okay. Uh, remote human resources is and continues to be a very hot field. Everybody I know who's in it, uh, not just these couple clients, but everybody I know who's in it is swamped with work. So yeah. what I'm curious about is I know that your company, Lanteria, supports that. So what is it that you do? So Lanteria is uh, an HR management software. Uh, so, I mean, the, the most analogous ones would be Bamboo HR, uh, Hi Bob, or Workday would be the ones that pretty much anyone knows. Uh, yeah, I, I, I've, I've at least heard of all of those, but yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You may, you may not have used them unless you've worked in a relatively large company, which mm -hmm. neither one of us have worked in. So I, yeah. I also have never used any of these softwares other than, you know, being the owner of the company. Uh, right. We, you know, we compete with those those groups. And, and you know, our, our basic target is, you know, companies that are about 200 to 5,000 employees. Uh, and what we focus mostly on is, is Microsoft users. So our product is built on top of Microsoft technology and everything is very highly integrated inside of, you know, Microsoft Teams, SharePoint. Uh, I know we made a joke before about Teams, but, uh, you know, great product, fantastic product. We love Microsoft Teams. Yeah. <laughs> that's what, that's what we've, we've uh, our product is sort of built inside that ecosystem. So our objective over the next uh, three years is to be the number one, HRMS product for Microsoft users. So that's, that's okay. what we're, we're aiming for. Um, and, and what it does is, you know, it's, it's essentially a way from hiring to, we say hiring to retirement, but you could say hire to firing, yeah. uh, you know, anything inside of the employee life cycle. So, you know, in the applicant tracking system, we're just a one-stop shop of, you know, we connect the LinkedIn. So you're taking in ATA, you're taking the applicants, sucks it in through our, our, our product, uh, goes into our core HR module. We have all the data. So once you've hired someone, it, you know, all their data that came in through the application now is inside the system. Now you can put them with their manager, do, you know, run one-on-ones through their OKRs, KPIs, uh, all the uh -huh. sort of employee engagement stuff runs through there. And any of their contract work, any of their payroll information is, is all kept inside of our system. So, I mean, we compete essentially with Microsoft Excel and, and, folders. Um, and, you know, we get a lot of clients that are coming from Excel and want to move into a more st stable, structured, secure uh, environment. And, and that's why they come to an HRMS. And, and, you know, one of our biggest difference makers is exactly that it's, we, we work a lot with like conglomerates that have offices 
and different companies all over the world. So they might have 50 different companies. And the great thing is from our product, they can run them all through the same uh, the same infrastructure. So it doesn't need to be, you need, you need, if you use that for high Bob, you'd have to have 50 different accounts for high Bob, where with ours, you just have one set of licenses and it all sort of runs through the central, uh, central group. So it's an interesting little niche, right? That's, oh, that's really cool. Especially the thing about the, um, about the license access. Uh, so, uh, now is this, uh, is this only for the management of the companies or do the employees also get portals? No, everyone's everyone has access. I mean, it depends on what level you're on. I mean, that we have well, yeah. obviously there's there's the HR portal, there's manager portals, and then there's employee portals. The employees are typically using it for you know absence management. So you're going on vacation, you kind of check check when your vacation days are. You you tell the boss when your vacation days are. They approve it. Uh, those basic workflows. They they also get access. To, you know, all their contracts, all their pay stubs, all their information. Uh, from the company is inside of there. And then, like I said, anything that's employee engagements in there too. So if they're doing one-on-ones, follow-ups with their bosses, uh, follow-ups with HR, employee uh, engagement surveys, they'd be able to access all that inside the portal. So it's, I mean, the, the cool thing about HR software is it's the one, it's one of the few pieces of software besides uh, video conferencing and email that every single person in the company touches the same piece of software, which is pretty yeah. rare. If you think about it, a lot of software is sort of siloed into specialties or into departments and HR software touches everyone. So you do need to make it pretty user friendly uh, to to be able to survive. Right, right. Uh, So so I I think that's fantastic. And particularly what I love about it is the information management side of the whole thing, because, yeah, you mentioned siloing and and coming from that you have technology stacking and things like that and with human resources particularly uh when you think about an employee's mobility throughout the company uh it's pretty important for you to be able to track their entire history with the company and be able to move them around uh i mean i you know my days working in corporate or about 20 years ago but i remember i but i remember how things uh like um internal promotions or internal transfers uh would take weeks and uh, sometimes it's because their existing supervisor just refused to let them go i had i had that happen to me once yeah uh but uh it, it's like uh it's like my 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 who's going to be my new boss was ready to have me and uh and my existing supervisor kept uh kept going around the process and have and having the transfer delayed and then wanted me to continue to be partially assigned to their department even after I'd moved. So uh, uh, it's good to be loved, but it's also good to be able to have a way of systematically transferring people and being able to facilitate that. Now, I found out in the background that what I just described is really what kind of happened. The way it was explained to me was paperwork delays. <laughs> that's that's a fantastic excuse that's a great way to just keep someone stuck in their job and it's a great way to to you know take employee engagement and throw it in the garbage because that is you know the fastest way to just deflate your employees is to put them in a position where they don't know what what their mobility is don't understand you know where they're going to be going and don't understand why something's going on and saying that it's right. you know, a paper delay or something like that is just a ridiculous, uh, ridiculous excuse that that I assume you probably left the company soon after. I uh, I was right about that. 
that all happened right around the point where I'd actually decided to stay with the company for a while. And here's the reason why. I'd recently completed my MBA and I'd done the whole um, job interview such. I actually got a couple offers, but I ended up turning them down. Uh, and the reason was, is I'd also uh, connected with a previous mentor of mine who at that point in his trajectory owned a small training and development firm. Now, my MBA concentration was in human resources. And I did that concentration because my career goal was to become a training director development director of a fortune 100 so i uh thought okay well this is where i'm going to actually get the on the ground experience working with this small firm so i'll start here and i'll do it as a side hustle well i caught the entrepreneurial bug but at the time i didn't know what i didn't know and i didn't know questions to ask i didn't even know the questions were there about how to transition from being an employee to being an entrepreneur and i thought it was this long drawn out process it would take years so i looked at it and I thought, okay, I'm basically having a diagonal promotion handed to me with a significant pay increase with more flexibility in my working hours. Now, if your ultimate goal is is to become full-time in your own business, that sounds pretty good. Yeah, that's the, (laughs) that sounds actually damn good. (laughs) That's, that's uh, why a lot of entrepreneurs come out of Google apparently is they have sort of a similar, similar setup where they're basically financed by Google's uh, salary to them to start a company because they have so many hours to, to do it. When I first finished college and I had, uh, and after four and a half years, I had no idea what I wanted to do career wise. I caught a bug for a while wanting to work in the temporary staffing industry. So I did old school networking and got interviews with every temp staffing agency in town. And several of them asked me if I had been interviewed by this one particular company. This one name kept coming up. And I would say, yeah, I did interview with them. And then they never called me back. And they said, well, if they call you back, take what they offer. It'll probably be really crappy money. And uh, you're probably going to find that uh, the woman you're working for, who's their owner's daughter, is a real piece of work. Uh, But stay there for as close to a year as possible until they find an excuse to fire you and then give me a call back. And if I have an opening, it's yours. So what they were telling me is, is there was this company in town that could make you a really good recruiter but they didn't have the employee relations thing down at all. And when I, and when, and when, and what they described to me basically happened exactly as it did. Uh, I did, uh, you know, call those people back and uh, they, and they said, Oh yeah, I remember you. So how did it work out at such and such place? I'd heard you got hired there. So uh, they let you go what last week. And I said, yep. It's like, all right, when can you come in? Met with all these people again. And uh, three-fourths of my second conversations with them were them revealing to me that they themselves had started there and telling me their horror stories. Interesting. But the the underlying points, the underlying point to all of this is that when you look at building a business or building a career or uh, acquiring a series of companies, there's your learning phase and your earning phase. Yeah. So I was told by all these companies to do the learning phase and then come back to them. So basically, they were getting their competition to train me for them. Hey, that's the way of the world. I ended up getting I ended up getting another job in that industry, which lasted only a week before I was let go. And uh, the reason was uh, it wasn't really what I wanted. 
I, I, yeah. I had no, I had no real resonance with it. And, uh, and at the second job, when she pulled me in the office after the first week and told me that she was firing me, she said, she said, look, I'm doing, I'm doing, I'm doing you a favor here. Um, we don't pay you what you deserve and you shouldn't be working with these types of people anyway. And, uh, to her credit, she actually helped me try and find another job. But uh, through that process, I decided I just didn't want to do it anymore. What happened was I got accepted to Duquesne University to enter their MBA program. It was beginning of June anyway, and I had done nothing but work my entire life. So I thought, okay, well, I still am, I still am eligible for unemployment from when I lost the first job. So I'll just call them up and restart the checks, and I'll cut grass for the summer, get outside, get some exercise. That's, that's what that's I did. exactly what you need. It's and then, yeah, 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 a better what? option. Yeah, and the way I figured it is, uh, is okay. So yeah, I I took I took two months off from my career. Um, any employer that's going to look at that ten years later and say, "Why did you take two months off? Why didn't you have a job?" I wouldn't want to work for them anyway. Yeah, I, I totally agree. Yeah. So 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 overall, what I think is is great about technologies like yours is that it takes people out of processes where people are actually the problem, like managing paperwork, transferral of data, giving people access to things like, you know, you mentioned absence management, uh, uh, you know, having to go through five conversations, three emails and four forms to uh, get your PTO. That's silly. Why can't you just log into a portal and uh, say, uh, I want this day, this day and this day. And then uh, somebody on the other end clicks a button and says, yep, yep, nope, yep. yep. Good to go. Yeah, that that's all done in ten seconds. And if you have any questions about it, then you have a conversation. But ninety five percent of the process of just getting your PTO uh, can be done with a few mouse clicks. Why do you need people for that? So what it does, yeah, what it does, is actually coordinating, coordinating yeah. across. The, you know, you you, you got a team of ten people, and right. you want to make sure that people are paying attention and respecting each other as well. Saying, you know, if everyone grabs the same days for for their PTO, obviously it creates some problems. So you want to make sure that people have some awareness. Right. And can respect each other. Right. So I can vision a pro so I can vision a process where the manager has a dashboard and they can look at it from account from a calendar view and say, um, I have 10 people on my team. I have no PTOs out on this day. I have three PTOs out on this day. I have two PTOs on this day, but this but this uh, client deliverable is due the day after that. So I don't know if I can allow any more. So so if I go in there uh and I ask for and I ask for August 2nd. And I'm the fifth person on that team of 10 to request August 2nd. I can vision the manager being able to click a button that says uh, says no. And then also gives an automated response that says, we have five PTOs on this day already. Can you please pick another yep. one? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And you can you can kind of be more transparent. In it, and it allows for HR to have, you know, it allows for different levels of the company to make more homogenous sort of decisions and make more homogenous uh, discussions where, you know, before people might have been doing one-on-ones, they might have been doing employee engagement by by department or by manager, and now at least you know the HR can say, hey, you know, make sure you ask these questions. We want to be gathering this data. We want to be centralizing this data where it's not just everything is just each individual department, each individual person, and you know the overall company can have a little bit more control over what's what's going on there. Right, right, yeah. So as we wrap up here, real quick, uh, just uh, and this may be your first time to reveal a little something. Uh, what's next for you? So we are raising more money to acquire more HR companies. That's, okay. Uh, 
that's what we're working on right now is is to get to the next level we see this as a generational opportunity right now the the downturn in vc money and the increase in interest rates have put a lot of companies in a situation where they aren't getting their next round of funding it's not coming they don't know how to become profitable and they have good products but they were poorly structured and poorly set up and a lot of them have horrible cap tables and nobody has an incentive to stay in these companies so yeah. we are looking at specifically just HR. Uh, so I'm doing a lot of work on you know building up our reputation in HR, building up uh, a stable of money. So we're looking for investors to join us. And that is sort of the next phase is, is build up a fund to acquire these companies. Oh, fantastic. So I'm going to invite our listeners, uh, go check out Andrew's website. It's uh, at lanteria.com. That's L-A-N-T-E-R-I-A. Com. I'll spell it one more time for you, for those of you who are out remotely and are about to uh, type this in on the browser on your phone. It's L-A-N-T-E-R-I-A.com. Uh, also, you know, you know, reach out to Andrew Swiler. Tell him you heard him on the Business Creators Radio Show. I don't get anything for that, but uh, I, love our, I love our people to feel good. So with that, uh, Andrew, thank you so much for being with us today. It's been an honor and believe me in education. We trust you enjoyed today's episode of the Business Creators Radio Show. Check out our previous and upcoming episodes on our website at www.businesscreatorsradioshow.com. While you're there, be sure to subscribe via your favorite network so you get fresh episodes delivered straight to you. Until next time, have a great day. Take care.